Andrew Bonar was a Scottish Presbyterian in the 1800s. He was born around 1810. He lived during a time when there was spiritual giants who walked the land. In fact, he came from a whole tribe of preachers. He, uh, his uncle was a pastor. His cousin was a pastor. He had two older brothers, John and Horatius Bonar, who were both lifelong preachers of the gospel. He and his brothers trained at Edinburgh under the auspices of Thomas Chalmers, famous for that sermon that's most often the title gets quoted, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Andrew Bonar, uh, part of my interest in him is that he wrote what is probably a classic commentary on the book of Leviticus. But when you read from his journals that he wrote in throughout his entire life, you see a theme of a passionate desire for his own personal holiness. For instance, at age 33, he said, quote, I plainly see that my fellowship with God is not a means to an end, but is the end itself. I am not to use it as a preparation for study, but as to my chief end, the nearest thing to heaven. He saw his communion, his fellowship, his love for the Lord as of the utmost importance. And, and uh, as, a, as one who regularly prepares sermons, uh, I can appreciate his temptation of seeing sometimes this as a means to an end in sermon preparation. At age 34, he said, quote, close walking with God daily, if not hourly, taste of the sweetness of Christ. Oh, to be as Enoch till I die. Of course, an allusion to Enoch in Genesis who walked with God until he was walking the streets of heaven. At age 55, Bonar, Andrew Bonar says, some nearness and enjoyment and spending some hours alone with the Father, Son, and Spirit. It was basking in the beams of grace. And this theme continued on into his latter years. At age 72, his journal says, I sometimes get moments when I, le- when I seem to realize myself as face to face with Christ within the veil, walking with Him. Still distressed at the fact that my fellowship with the Lord is so broken instead of being constant and continuous. And then the last excerpt from his journal, at age 80, Bonar says, I'm struck to the heart, often with wonder that I have so little communion with Christ. Bonar understood that the key to holiness in the Christian life was a growing vibrant love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I bring that up because I think we see something of that connection here in the book of Leviticus. It, it, it can be easy to read the book of Leviticus, especially this section, as a list of rules. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Stop doing this, do this. And miss these regular connections that Moses brings us to 
concerning our relationship with the covenant God. In fact, I mentioned earlier that it's earlier in the series, not earlier this morning, but some 14 times there's this repeated phrase throughout Leviticus 19, I am Yahweh, or I am Yahweh your God. And this is clearly an allusion back to Exodus chapter 20 when God reminds Israel before he gives them the Ten Commandments that I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay? So this, was, this is God's way of saying, remember I am the God who saved you. And we see that in this passage most explicitly at the end of Leviticus 19 and verse 34 where it says, you shall love him as yourself, talking about the foreigner, the sojourner, the alien, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Remember that, guys? And again, this is, this is that generation that experienced the Exodus. Exodus comes right before Leviticus, in case you didn't know that. And Exodus is where God exits his people out of the land. He brings them out of slavery. He saves them. He redeems them. And so I I think this is important because this helps us to understand that the fuel, one of the major fuels and motivations for living a holy, a distinct life is God's grace. God's grace as we receive his grace and our hearts swell with gratitude. God, you delivered me. You saved me. You rescued me. And then it As John Piper says, gratitude hands the ball off to love. And then love runs for the end zone of obedience. Okay? As we bask in God's grace, even as we sung this morning, tune our hearts to sing your grace, right? Streams of mercy. This is the fuel of the Christian life. This is the fuel of the life for ancient Israel. But that's not the only motivation that Moses draws our thinking to. Notice fearing Yahweh comes up several times throughout this chapter. Two times in this section. In verse 30, he says, fear my sanctuary, I am Yahweh. That's an interesting statement. The sanctuary at this point would have been the tabernacle, right? You know those chapters, what is it, like 34 all the way through the the end of of Exodus that often is our stumbling point in our Bible reading through the year. You know, there's all the measurements, there's curtain sizes and all, all kinds of different stuff. All these meticulous descriptions, that's for the tabernacle. And God said, fear my sanctuary, fear my tabernacle. What does he mean by that? Well, remember in Leviticus chapter 10, God struck dead Nadab and Abihu. Because they offered strange fire. They weren't revering the Lord. There was no holy reverence for this God. There was a a trifling with Him. And then also in verse 32, in the context of exhorting them to uh, honor the aged, He says, you shall fear your God, I am Yahweh. And so sometimes we think these these kind of two pillars are opposites or, or um, almost like mutually exclusive. Either, either my obedience is fueled by God's grace and thankfulness, or it's fueled by fear. And, and they're not mutually exclusive, as we see here. 
that our, this kind of fear of the Lord is a reverence, a reverence that is rooted in a relationship, a, a, a kind of reverence and fear that is probably best understood in the context of a father-child relationship, right? Those of you who have had the privilege of growing up in a home with a loving father, you, you can often recollect that I love my dad, but I also knew you don't cross my dad, okay? You, you don't mess with dad. When he says do, you do. And so the, the, I know in my own household there was this respect for my father, but also it wasn't exclusive to the reality that I could draw near to my father and hug him and feel the warmth of his embrace. And so it's similar here in Leviticus 19. Because it's no accident that God discloses himself as Father. Right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, we're going to look at four different spheres of holiness for the believer. That ought to be motivated... By love and fear. The first is a holy home. A holy home. Does that mean you have Bible verses posted everywhere in your house? You know, everywhere from behind the sink while you're washing dishes and, you know, in the mirror in the bathroom? Maybe. <laughs> but what, what is meant here by Moses in verse 29 says, Do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot so that the land will not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. Say, whoa. (laughs) Where did that verse come from, right? I didn't know that was in the Bible. So this is obviously a prohibition related to Israel and particularly the fathers, the parents of Israel using and abusing their daughters by prostituting them out. Say, well, what would have been going on during this time for Moses to make such a prohibition? Well, all you have to do is read some of the ancient Near Eastern literature, especially related to worship in the pagan temples, whether it was in Egypt or whether it was the Canaanites, where the Israelites were going. Remember, they're they're between Egypt and and Canaan. God delivered them out of Egypt. He promised them the promised land. They're not there yet. In both places, it was a regular practice in the worship of these pagan gods to have prostitutes, especially in relationship to the gods of Baal and Ostrath, which we see if you read through First and Second Kings, those names come up over and over and over as Pagan gods that seduced the Israelites. In fact, one particular queen in Israel was the evangelist for Baal, namely Jezebel. Anybody naming their daughters Jezebel these days? I didn't think so. And so that that was something of the context. Listen to Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Leviticus. He says, temple prostitutes were a well-known feature of ancient religion. Indeed, Hebrew often calls them holy girls to dispel any lingering doubts 
about the true nature of holiness, cult prostitution is here declared to profane the girl, make her unholy, and fill the land with wickedness. And so, and again, remember the context of Leviticus 19 where, where throughout this section there was certain uh, laws that were helped to help those who were in desperate poverty. That, that the temptation to sell one's daughter was, was, was a no-no. God had provision that the, the edges of the field were to be left for the destitute poor. That this was not an option for any ancient Israelite to sell his daughter in this kind of way. Well, you may think, well, surely, Matt, we are far more morally advanced in our society today. Really? When child pornography is a billion-dollar industry. Well, how do children get involved in child pornography? Well, often their parents or certainly their guardians. And so this is something, again, you can see the, the relevance of God's law and how it speaks to us even today, thousands of years later. As our culture descends into the abyss of sexualizing children, God's law speaks to us and says, this is not permissible. You do not allow your daughters to participate in this. That there is a holy responsibility that parents in general, and can I say it, fathers in particular, have to protecting their daughters. Andrew Bonner, I mentioned him in the introduction, in his commentary on Leviticus, says, it may be meant as a caution to parents to prevent their daughters gadding about like Dinah lest they should fall in, in with another Shechem. Parents are held responsible for the conduct of their daughters. So much influence they, have they, and so much blessing does God attach to proper training at the hands of parents that neglect in using all these means is reckoned as conniving at and participation in the sin that follows. In other words, parents in general, fathers in particular, you have a holy responsibility to protect your daughters. To do what you can. I understand there, there may be, there, there comes a certain coming of age where you have no, no more control over your children, right? But when they're in your home and under your authority... You can do what you can to protect them. Now let's start meddling. Even in the clothes that they wear. 
Men, fathers, you know all the temptations that are peculiar to at one point being a young man. And you know there are certain things, certain body parts of a female that draw your attention. And so part of your responsibility is reminding your daughters to cover those parts up. Do not show them off. Because as the old proverb says, I don't know how old it is, but what you win them with, you win them to. And also can I say, young ladies, do not kick against the loving protection of your fathers. Do not chafe against it. Nobody, listen to this, Nobody loves you more than your parents love you. You get that? You may think that some young man whispering sweet nothings in your ear loves you more than your parents, but I guarantee he doesn't. Now, maybe one day, when he's man enough to take your hand in marriage, he will demonstrate such love. But fathers, we have a sacred responsibility to protect our daughters and to devote them. Again, remember, this, is the, he, this prohibition is related to don't prostitute your daughters and, and almost certainly it's an allusion to the temple prostitution that would take place in which a child would be devoted to a pagan god. Instead, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, fathers... Do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instead of passively allowing them to be devoted to some pagan god, to be used and abused, instead do all that you can in your human effort to raise them as unto the Lord. I understand children are responsible and they may stiff arm that. But you do everything you can so that at the end of the day you can say, I did what I could. I prayed for them. I pleaded with them. I taught them. I instructed them. The Lord Jesus, how does he relate to children? One of the beautiful portraits we have throughout the Gospels is while Jesus had no children of his own, he had numerous encounters with children. In fact, Matthew chapter 19, 13 and following, some brought children to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked these people who were bringing the children. And But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying hands on them, he departed from there. And then earlier on in Matthew 18, 5 and 6, in a similar context, it's Jesus says, whoever receives one child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck. Than that he be, uh, in that he be drowned into the depths of the sea. So on the one hand, we see Jesus display this tremendous 
tenderness towards children, praying for them, blessing them. On the other hand, him giving severe warning for whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, they will end in a kind of mafioso death. A cement block chained to their neck. So, holiness in the home. Happy New Year. Aim for the purity of your children to actually, not in ceremony only, but to give their hand to their future husband. Secondly, holiness in honoring the aged. Or if you want to keep the H's going, the hoary-headed. H-O-A-R-Y. Verse 32, you shall rise up before the gray-haired and honor the aged. You shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. Verse 32 here says, rise up before the gray-haired. And clearly this is an illusion, rising up in respect, standing in honor. In fact, uh, in Job 29, 7 and 8, when Job describes how he had been respected by others. He says, when I went out to the city gate, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid. The old men arose and stood. To rise up before the gray-haired and to honor the aged. The silvery hair. And and again, even by the very language here, you can see how very countercultural this is, right? Because typically, when you start to hit those middle-aged years, you're not longing for the gray hairs. You're going to wash that gray right out of your hair. (laughs) you're doing what you can to conceal the gray hair to make yourself look younger and I'm I'm not poo-pooing that have at it but what I am pointing out here is how very countercultural this is we tend to worship youth we uphold youngness but we don't respect and honor the aged as we should. It is interesting that there are some cultures, even some who aren't even necessarily influenced so much by Christianity who do honor the aged. Eastern cultures. In fact, it is kind of interesting because and notice the previous verse in 31. It says, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists to seek them out to be defiled by them. I am Yahweh your God. Uh, mediums and spiritists were used to consult whom? The dead, right? Ancestors. Those are the really aged, right? They're so old, they're dead, right? And, and so a lot of times in cultures that worship ancestors, there is also, uh, in one sense, a good respect for the elderly. 
And so there can be a temptation when, when there's this prohibition. No, do not consult mediums or spiritists. Do not engage in worship of ancestors that there would be this dismissing of the elderly. No, no, we don't want to get into that. That voodoo stuff, no, that's for the pagans. But God here is saying, no, well, on the one hand, you do not consult the dead. You do not try to talk to the dead. You do respect the aged living. You do respect and honor the elderly. And there's a variety of reasons why we should. Number one, God says to. Okay? I mean, that's really all we need, right? Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of beauty. It is to be found in the way of righteousness. Proverbs 20, verse 29, honor, The honor of young men is their strength, the majesty of old men is their gray hair. And we, we see something of what happens when there is disrespect for the elderly. It, it, it often leads to the collapse of society. Or in many ways it's an evidence of the collapse of society. Isaiah 3.5 says, And the people will be oppressed each one by another, each one by his neighbor. The youth will overwhelm the elder. We sadly sometimes see that, the way in which a young person breaks into the home of an elderly person, pistol whips them, leaves them for dead, takes all their stuff. Tragically, even sometimes... People's own children and grandchildren do that to them. Awful. In 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 23, not long after Elijah had been taken up in chariots, there was some 42 young men who saw Elisha, his protege, and they say and they begin to mock him. Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! Remember how that one ended? Two female bears hadn't eaten in a long time. And they saw 42 young men and mauled them all. Now, obviously, that's the way in which these young men were disrespecting the voice of God through the prophet, but certainly there's also something to be said. They're mocking Elisha and his age. It hit the years where the hairline was no longer receding because it had receded as far as it could recede. Also, the wisdom of elders. In Job 32, 6 Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you my knowledge. That was a different time. <laughs> Elihu, who, one of Job's counselors, evidently the, the only one who got it right, because he's the only one not punished at the end of the book of Job, he, he was fearful of speaking in the midst of his elders. 
you know, part of God's wisdom in this world is that parents, grandparents, elderly have lived longer than young people. They may not know how to check their email on their phone, but they've lived life. They may begin to get forgetful. They may not have immigrated well in this digital universe, but they've lived life. And often the living of life you learn often by mistakes. And so the aged can impart wisdom to the young. And so there should be listening ears from the young. Not a kind of proud arrogance that dismisses the counsel of the older. In fact, we see that in, uh, also in Kings and 1 Kings, I think, chapter 12 with Rehoboam. Remember that punk? That was Solomon's son. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 5 through 8, then he said to them, go for three days and then return to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the elders. So, so there had always kind of been this division between the north and the south in ancient Israel. And, and the north sent elders down to the south to King Rehoboam in Jerusalem. And basically it was like, come on, man, you, you, you got to cut us some slack. Your dad was, was a hard slave driving man. He had all these projects, building his palace, building the temple, and it was forced labor. And so basically the council of the elders from the north was, was, was to relax this kind of heavy-handedness. And so Rehoboam took counsel with those elders from the north who had stood before his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to respond to the people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and you will serve them and grant their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But Rehoboam, he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had counseled him, and he took counsel with the young men, his homies, who grew up with him and stood before him. And you remember what happened. Those from the north said, all right, we'll take our ball and go home. If you're going to be heavy-handed with us, we don't need you. And that's what they did. They split off from the south. They seceded. But also another reason to respect and honor the aged is the weakness that is often accompanied by being elderly. Jay Skler in his commentary on Leviticus says, says, such respect was also a natural impulse of those showing the Lord's love to the disadvantaged. For we slow and weaken as we age and are in greater need of patient care and compassion. Just read Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's all about aging, the aging process. In, in fact, the, the, the thread in each of these spheres 
whether it's daughters, the aged, the foreigner, or the customer, each of them are in a position of being disadvantaged, a position of weakness and can be taken advantage of. And God says, no, no, you do not exploit the weak. You protect, you help the weak. And this is consistent in the New Testament, right? 1 Timothy 5, 1, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but plead with him as a father. And then that same chapter in 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 8, says, Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. It's in that same context that, uh, that uh, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his own family, he is worse than what? An unbeliever. That's in the context of caring for, providing for, honoring family members who don't have anybody to take care of them. Friends, we have a responsibility towards the elderly. First to our elderly family members, but also to those in our sphere of knowledge and influence. To be a help to them. To make sure they're okay. To care for them. To help with whatever physical needs there may be. One pastor tells the story of a family... A young family with husband and wife and two-year-old daughter. And uh, the mother's mother, grandma, was uh, experiencing some health difficulties. And so they decided to take her in the home. And she would eat at the table. And often because of her shaking hand and her lack of dexterity that had waned over the years. She would often spill her drink. She would spill her food, often make something of a mess. And so the parents decided that they would give her her own kind of section table off in the corner. And pretty soon they were hardly talking to grandma. Time went on. And the two-year-old one day was playing with her blocks. And she was building something with her blocks. And her father, observing her building project, said, Sweetie, what, what are you building? She said, Oh, I'm building a table. A table, and I'm going to put it off in the corner when, when you, and mommy are, you and mommy are older. And you can eat off in the corner. Well, thankfully, that was a rebuke to dad. And he realized he wasn't honoring grandma as he should be. And before long, grandma was back at the table. You get the point. Parents, grandparents, they're often the ones that changed our diapers, fed us. We ought to return the favor. Out of the fear of the Lord. Out of love for the Lord. 
But thirdly, third sphere of holiness, not only holiness in the home, holiness in honoring the aged, holiness, thirdly, in helping the foreigner. Verse 33, when a sojourner sojourns with you in the land, you shall not mistreat him. The sojourner who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. How are you to treat a foreigner? It says you shall, in verse 34, they shall be to you as the native among you. In other words, you're not to treat him or to mistreat him, to treat them like trash because they're an outsider, because they maybe come from a different culture, because maybe they speak a different language, because they maybe have different customs. But there is to be a kindness towards those who are outsiders. And then, notice that the second uh, way that... God through Moses says we're to treat them. To love him as yourself. The standard of love for the foreigner is the same standard that he gave in 1918. Namely, to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So now you can kind of see something of, uh, uh, of what was going on in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because the Samaritan was indeed a foreigner, right? God wants us to consider what we might feel like if we were from a different land, a different culture, different customs, even a different language. And then notice why. We, I mentioned this at the beginning, but verse 34 gives, again, this motivation. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. In other words, remember? Remember when you were in Egypt... And we, we see even passages in the book of Genesis that uh, the Egyptians wouldn't eat at the same table as the Hebrews. You, you remember what it was like to be an outsider. You remember what it was like to be a foreigner in a foreign land. And again, friends, in our culture in which in our country which for whatever reason has decided that the southern border is open, which, by the way, has not led to human flourishing, has led to people being out in the cold, has led to sex trafficking and all kinds of other things. But there can be a temptation to then think in a disdainful way about any immigrant. And God would have us not to do that, despite the foolish policies of our government officials. There is a legitimate way to get into the country and there is an illegitimate way. To encourage unlawful entry is not helpful. But nonetheless, as Christians, we ought to be kind to the stranger, to the foreigner. We ought to extend a helping hand. We see this in the book of Ruth, right? I mentioned to it earlier on in, in Leviticus 19. We see that uh, Boaz extends kindness to Ruth the Moabite. She was 
from a pagan people, from a people that was often a thorn in the side of the Israelites. And yet Boaz, long before there was hearts flying in the air and journey love songs playing in the background, he's showing kindness to her. We see this theme throughout the scriptures, Exodus, Exodus 22, 21, you shall not mistreat a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Again, Andrew Bonar says, the stranger here spoken of is one who has come to reside in Israel for the sake of Israel's God, or just because he, uh, or just because he referred their land. Such persons are to be so many memorials of Israel's former bondage. In public or private dealings with them, they must not oppress them by word or action. Their laws must not vex them. Israel must have compassion and consideration like the great high priest who was yet to arise. And we see this as well with the person of our Lord Jesus. In fact, there's one occasion in Matthew chapter 8 A leper comes to Jesus. And normally people would run from lepers. But Jesus goes towards this leper and heals this leper. And then almost immediately after that, there is a centurion. A centurion who comes to Jesus in a desperate situation. pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now keep in mind, a centurion, not only was this a Gentile, a foreigner, this was, a man, this was, this was one of the feds, okay? This was a guy working for the Roman government, strong-arming, the Israelite people into paying taxes. These guys were public enemy number one. These were the kinds of guys who got, you know, stabbed by, you know, Israelite terrorists. They would just shank them. And Jesus says to this man as he pleads, not for himself, but for his servant who's paralyzed, The guy says to to Jesus, or Jesus says, I will come and heal him. In verse 8 of Matthew chapter 8, the centurion said, Lord, I'm not good enough for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to a man, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. In other words, the centurion says, Jesus, you don't even have to come into my house. Just speak the word. Verse 10, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who were following him, truly I say to you, I have not found such faith, such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. course we see this as well Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well 
even though in that context, Jesus was actually the foreigner, right? Because he's in Samaria. But still, nonetheless, there was a, there was, they were close neighbors as, as Samaria was kind of landlocked uh, within Israel. And yet, this woman is shocked because Jesus is talking to her. Jesus is actually willing to drink from the same vessel that she drinks from and not afraid of getting Samaritan cooties. He plows through all those cultural taboos. Why? To extend the grace of God to this Gentile, half-Jewish, half-Gentile woman. Showing kindness to the outsider. Kindness to the foreigner. Friends, we need to have an eye to the outsider. An eye of compassion. In our increasingly dark culture, I don't know if you've noticed it, but we have some very different strange beliefs than the rest of the world. And so there's temptations to look with suspicion upon the eyes, uh, upon an outsider with our eyes. But we need to have compassion. We need to look for those who come in and are interested in things of the Lord, but don't quite have the right vocabulary, don't quite have the right customs, but still need to know the grace of God in truth. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So, you can see this holiness is very tangible, right? Holiness in protecting your daughters in the home. Holiness when it comes to honoring the elderly. Holiness in, in, in regards to Extending kindness to the outsider, loving the stranger, the foreigner. And now fourth and lastly, holiness in honest business practices or holiness in the marketplace. And again, with each of these examples, whether it's the foreigner, whether it's the daughter, whether it's the elderly, and now here it's the customer. Each of them in a very real sense are in a posture of weakness. And there can be temptations to exploit such weaknesses for your own advantage. And this is why in this context God says, I am Yahweh, fear God. In other words, you know, in the law courts of ancient Israel and in the law courts of today, people do take advantage of the weak. People do exploit the weak. And often evade justice. But God is saying, I'm watching. And remember, you were in a posture of weakness. You were an outsider. And so here in verse 35 and following, he says, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight, or in volume. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall thus keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. I am Yahweh. What's he talking about here? Just 
measurements, just weight, just volume. And then he mentions two uh, measurements, one a hin, one an ephah. And we don't know the exact measurements of these. Maybe an ephah was three point something liters. But, but you get the point, right? A just pound, a just ounce. In other words, you don't have weighted scales in doing something where you are, uh, you know, trying to cheat somebody from into purchasing something that they're not actually purchasing. You want to be honest, forthright. And again, God is a God of truth. Proverbs 20, verse 10, differing weights and differing measures, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. We talked about this earlier in the chapter as it came up earlier in chapter 19. Same kind of idea. In other words, there's no place for coming in the church on Sunday portraying yourself as living a godly life and then on Monday in the workplace being conniving, deceptive, shady. God says, no. Fear me. Know that I am watching. You don't take advantage of others. And again, it's a, you know, there's certain... Things as a customer that you are really at the mercy of the, the person selling you whatever good or service. You know, this is often, you know, sometimes mechanics take advantage of women who may not be able to find their way around the car, know what's going on with the car. This can happen in sales, it can happen wherever. We want to be honest in our business practices. Remember how Jesus dealt with those who were involved in shady business practices in the temple? There's actually two instances where Jesus drives out the money changers. One at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, one towards the end before he is crucified. And in Matthew 21, 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple, drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. He, he rebukes them. He turns over their tables because this was supposed to be a house of prayer, but he was making it into a robber's den. In other words, what was going on was p- people were coming from all over the world into Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, and there was a kind of temple currency that they would often have to exchange whatever currency, wherever they came from. Let's say if they came from Persia or if they came from you know some uh, Greek land or whatever, they, you had to change your currency. And of course, there was a, there was a little bit of a 
juice charge with that. There was a certain percentage that went to the temple. And then, uh, you know, if you brought your lamb, let's say you brought from some lamb from some far off land, they might inspect say, no, 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 this is not up to standards for the temple and sacrifice here. And so, but you can go over there and you can purchase a lamb for X amount of dollars. And, and it, it, what was going on was shady business operations here. And all this, by the way, was taking place in the outer part of the Herodian temple, the court of the Gentiles. This is the only place that the Gentiles could actually go and pray and worship. And Jesus was livid about it. He was very angry. In fact, I mentioned there was two instances. One is at the beginning of John. John chapter 2, when he does the same thing, in that context, remember, Jesus says, destroy this sanctuary in 2.19, and I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, then the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build the sanctuary, and will you raise it up in three days? But John explains, but he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. And isn't it interesting, within this same context in Leviticus chapter 19. In verse 30, God says, fear my sanctuary. And we know that the sanctuary of Yahweh, whether it was in the tabernacle or in the temple, is ultimately fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen God's standard of holiness. It's a high standard, right? It's a high standard in, in, in the protecting of the weak, whether it's, whether it's the daughters or whether it's the elderly or whether it's the foreigner or, or whether it's the customer. God calls for holiness in all of manner of life. And friends, we fall short of that standard. And this is why we need the Lord Jesus in His death and resurrection. Because friends, He is the one who rescues. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who extends His mercy to blanket all of our sins when He died upon that cross and rose from the dead. And that then becomes the motivation for you as you embrace that reality and trust in Christ alone for your eternal salvation, for you to live in holiness in all these spheres of life. When you remember when you were an outsider... When you were weak and vulnerable, when you were without hope and without Christ. But God came to you in mercy and brought you in to his fold and showed you grace. Now he calls you to live and extend kindness to those who are outsiders. Let's pray.